You know, I'm a firm believer that our stories do not belong to us. And it's important for us to tell our stories because I feel like there's someone sitting in a dark corner who needs to hear your story. There's someone that needs to hear the story to encourage them to leave an abusive relationship or motivate them or drive them into action. And I think for me, with the work that I do as a clinician serving in mental health, the stories are the ones that drive individuals to go to therapy. Hello, and welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge that we're on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish tribe. There we go. Hey, everyone. Kiki here. My pronouns are they, them. And I'm Ty. My pronouns are he, him. And we at Mirror Stage are a multidisciplinary performing arts company working in the Pacific Northwest. Here at Mirror Stage, we use the power of storytelling to challenge assumptions, bias, and prejudice, increasing equity and inclusion while encouraging more thoughtful reflection on today's issues. Uh, So Kiki, what's new with Mirror Stage? Well, we are currently towards the end of our main stage production of The Squirrel Plays. So today is Saturday. They're closing today, actually. Ty, did you get a chance to see Squirrel Plays? No, I didn't, unfortunately. I just, my schedule doesn't, it does not allow. So it just, I, today yeah, would have been I, the I day, honestly. <laughs> Oh, I see. Yeah, I feel that. Well, I thought, I actually thought last night, I got a good, I will say I got a good audience because was, it was pretty full. Um, and it's, they're just doing great work. It's just so interesting to see how a show kind of develops from the like first read through, through rehearsal, through tech, through opening, through weeks of performance, and just how it becomes that last, these last couple shows I think are going to be great for them um, because they're just, a unit now. They've been working so well together. Everybody is having a good time. And people can like learn about that more or hear about that from the like mini podcast episodes you did. Actually, I'm gonna throw you on right now. Can you chat a little bit for our listeners so that they can get caught up with like, hey, what Ty has been up to um working on the podcast though? Yeah, for sure. So I was gonna say that I definitely like that was a resounding sentiment with the cast. Like they love each other. Everybody's favorite thing about the Squirrel Plays was the cast and how, at least from the cast members, <laughs> their favorite part of the Squirrel Plays was the cast and how well they got along with each other. Um, and talking to them, listeners, you can go back and listen to some of the many interviews I conducted with them, but they are hilarious, specifically the group of neighbors, like their interactions with each, with each other are are hilarious to die for. Um, Angie, she plays three roles, and we'll finally get her back now, but she played three roles in Squirrel Plays, and she, like, does different voices for the three of them and sets them apart from each other, and and you all know Angie because if you listen to any of the recent episodes, you you hear how, how well-spoken and energetic she is, so she brings that um, to her characters as well, and, uh, and the leads, man and wife, they are, um, they... You wouldn't know that, at least from my interview, my short interview with them, you wouldn't know that they're not a real couple because they just play it so well. They bounce off each other so well. Um, and all of them just have such great energy and we're uh, such a delight. Um, so 
listeners, if you want to know more about behind the scenes at Squirrel Plays, you didn't get to check it out, um, and you just want to know more about what we've been doing, go back and check out those mini podcast interviews. Um, and there will be some, some, I was going to say posthumous, that's not the word for uh, the play because it's not dead, but there are going to be a few more that I didn't get to drop before the show, um, just so you can see what our stage designer did and our or set designer did and um and a few other people who were involved uh in the production as well awesome yeah and that was a fun but very taxing project on time <laughs> i wasn't <laughs> around as much for it so i was a little bummed that i didn't get to do all the things but i was there for a little bit of angie's just because we both happened to be at Beck at the same time so that was nice and so yeah so as this show is closing we are in the process of at near stage of just prepping for our next round of production so our next big our next big beast is the expand upon series and of course there's going to be things like our context bows or things before that but we're starting with expand upon and this theme we are working with is expand upon healthcare so we currently have our writers they are working away i'm going to get first draft of the script in about a week, maybe, no, two weeks, about two weeks, I get first drafts of the script. I'm hoping that Ty will be one of my readers for our first read-through of you the script. It. I think it'll be fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm just looking forward to Expand Upon and Summer. That's what I personally am looking forward to for Mirror Stage. Expand Upon, Summertime, let's let's get out. Let's get out and start doing more stuff out, out in, the, in the world with our community or a... Um, putting on productions and stuff like that as we're talking about in Texco and what we're, what we're going to be doing coming up. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so if all of that sounds great and fun to you listeners and you want to get involved, you can start by giving us a donation. If you like our podcast or want to help us fund any of the future productions we have going on here, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or you can text play it smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. And as always, if you are not able to give financially, we understand, respect, and still love you. And we would love you to just go ahead and rate and review the podcast. You can do that on any of the platforms that you're listening on. You can also feel free to share this episode with another person. But yes, that's another way that you can get involved and help us out over here on your stage. So today, listeners, we have, as always, a special treat for you. We're going to be talking with Ashley McGirt, who is the founder and CEO of the Therapy Fund Foundation. She's a psychotherapist, TEDx international speaker, and author. She received a Master's of Social Work from the University of Washington and a Bachelor of Science in Psychology. Ashley offers presentations, workshops, group facilitation, and consultation specializing in racial trauma, mental health, crisis response, social justice, and racial equity. Ashley currently owns and operates her own private practice that focuses primarily on racial trauma, depression, and anxiety. She's working towards destigmatizing mental illness and reducing high rates of recidivism in American prisons in an attempt to create a more socially just society for all. That was great. Yes. <laughs> Killing it, Ty. Whew, that was a mouthful. Um, <laughs> so, yes, I also wanted to say that uh, we did this recording in May 2023, and that is Mental Health Awareness Month that gets brought up. And so this is a little bit of a heavier 
topics that we have talked about. So I just want to give everybody a warning for we have conversations about mental health diagnosis. We also have a lot of talks about mental wellness, mental health, and suicide. Yes. So without further ado, here's our interview with Ashley McGirt of the Therapy Fund Foundation. Welcome in. Thank you so much for being with us. So please go ahead and start by introducing yourself to our listeners with your name and your pronoun. My name is Ashley McGirt Adair and my pronouns are she, her. And I would like to know what does storytelling mean to you, Ashley? Storytelling to me is the uniquely powerful gift that we all have within us to really capture history or fantasy. It's a way to bring the listener together. Um, when I think about storytelling, I think a lot about the Griots. They were some of the most revered individuals in West Africa, and they were storytellers. They were revered just as much as the king of the village because they held the stories and the histories of people. And I think a lot about the work that I do and how I tell my story or I use other stories to really um, make the work that I do relevant and accessible. And, you know, I'm a firm believer that our stories do not belong to us. And it's important for us to tell our stories because I feel like there's someone sitting in a dark corner who needs to hear your story. There's someone that needs to hear the story to encourage them to leave an abusive relationship or motivate them or drive them into action. And I think for me, with the work that I do as a clinician serving in mental health, the stories are the ones that drive individuals to go to therapy. And that's what I think about when I think about storytelling and what it means to me. That is such, that's one of the best, clearest definitions we've had anybody say on this podcast. It's just like, I was like, whoa, that is so great. And I I'm, I know because you write so much, you probably have had to think about and distill these thoughts down quite well in your TED Talks and all. So that was that was wonderful. Thank you. And 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 hooking it back to the tradition of, of the storytellers who kept all of the history in their heads and no everybody's name and all the ancestors and it just was memorized and re repeated over and over yes we need to really think about um, the importance of that in our lives and how our stories are interconnected with the ancestors and everybody else yes. and i so. think this is particularly important to black people people of color uh, the way yes. in which our stories are told because it impacts how we show up in our daily life. And so it's it's so important and we all have the ability to tell stories. Yes. Well, and that ability to tell stories is so important. Like you're saying about like kind of seems like about representation for each other, about who's getting access to what in regards to storytelling. But I also like this concept too. This It comes up a lot in like communities of color when talking about storytelling is it's like there's just this common understanding and this general idea of like we share stories with one another and like throughout generations throughout history so if that is lost in some capacity whether that be from generational trauma or denied access due to different kinds of reasons whether that be incarceration separation of families anything like that like where does that break happen and how these next generations no longer have the access to these stories of family and of history and of just fascinating, beautiful tales that might get lost over time. So I'm curious then, what is a story that has had a major impact on you? 
I was looking at that question and I'm like, there are way too many stories that have impacted my life. My own stories, stories from my grandmother, um, stories from the one who birthed me. But since this is Mental Health Awareness Month, um, when I was thinking about the stories that impact me, I was thinking about a story that isn't mine, but I truly know it in my bones. And that is of Kevin Hines. If you aren't familiar with him, he's a suicide survivor and a mental health advocate. Um, he attempted to end his life at the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, it's one of the places where many individuals come from all around the world to end their life. It's one of the top places. So when thinking about his story, he actually survived, but he tells the story of what happened. So before he decided to end his life at that particular time, he was still not really there, still kind of unsure, still looking for a reason not to end his life. And he's like, well, um, if someone says hi to me, if someone smiles at me, if someone speaks to me, then I'm not going to do it. And he hopped on the city bus. Um, I think it was a couple of hours. I'm not sure exactly. Um, but he went around and around. He was walking. Not one person looked at that man. Not one person smiled at him. Not one person said hello. And he just really felt invisible and that he was of no value to anyone. And he decided to jump. And he jumped. And he's one of the very few percent of individuals who've actually survived that jump. Um, he did break all the bones in his body. And to this day, he says that there was a seal that was circling, circling him and keeping him afloat. And he believes it was God. And I think a lot about his story, especially now during Mental Health Awareness Month and my own stories, um, just struggling with depression and which what drives the work that I do and how so many of us feel invisible and how we go throughout our day to day lives. And we don't even take the time to smile or say hello to somebody and how that can really have an impact. So that's a story that has really impacted my life. And I try to always make an effort to smile, say, hello, how are you doing? Because I don't know if I'll encounter a Kevin Hines who's questioning life and is looking for that person to see them. Well, that that's that's great. I mean, I, I've been trying to make a goal for myself. I'm from the South, so I'm used to smiling and saying hello to people, whether you know them or not, when you pass them on the street. And I noticed when I moved here, a lot of people don't do that here. You, you know, you nod, you say hello, when you pass them, and they look at like, I don't know you. <laughs> it's like, you don't have to know me. I'm just alive, and we're walking past each other. But lately, I've been trying to challenge myself. If I see someone has a nice sweater on or whatever, I don't, you know, like yesterday at Grocery Outlet, I said to this woman who didn't know me at all, I said, oh, that purple sweater looks so great on you. And and she just, it lit her up, you know, she just smiled because I said that. And I've been trying to challenge myself to do that at least once a day, you know, because I know how good I feel when somebody says, oh, you look so cute or whatever, you know. So just trying to find that place to connect with somebody about, you know, how their day's going or what they have on, you know. <laughs> so, same, same. Yeah. So I really relate, I relate to that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the uh, idea of my own stories, having a lot of depression in my family background. So trying to work against that. So yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, so what is your origin story? Are you from Washington or are you from somewhere else? So I am uh, born and raised in Washington. I was born in Tacoma at Mary Bridge Hospital. 
I've lived all over the state of Washington, but my origin story began far before I was even a thought. If you know anything about the human body, then you know how um, those who have ovaries are born with all the eggs that they will ever have in their body. So when my grandmother was carrying my mother in North Carolina, uh, she was carrying me. <laughs> and so it started somewhere in a very small town in Wade, North Carolina, and then ended up in California where my mother was birthed and then Tacoma, Washington, where I was birthed. And for so long, I really questioned that origin story. And I didn't understand why I was here. I didn't um, really want to be here. I was just extremely depressed and um, just had a lot of questions about what is life? What is my my place in life? What is my purpose? A lot of questions that I think so many of us end up questioning at some point in life. Um, but my origin story really originates with Dolores Constance McDowell. I call her grandmother. Uh, she was a frail, tiny little woman. <laughs> I have a picture of her somewhere over here. Um but her small frail was not to be mistaken. She was a powerhouse. She did not play any games. And she was a social justice advocate, a world traveler. And she really inspired so much of the work that I do and the way in which I live my life um, and my many travels and just my explorations throughout the world is, I think, where that really originates for me. And But yeah, in Tacoma... Um, and yeah, from Tacoma to Spokane, Yakima, Seattle, Berrien, Kent, I'm a Washington native. <laughs> All around, I see, which is great that you're not like, just like, what, just Seattle, yeah. just like, teddy, teddy, but all around. I blame Seattle. My, my cousins, they always like side-eye <laughs> me. They're like, because they know that we've lived everywhere, but I feel like the longest period of time um, where we were most stable was in Seattle. Also, Berrien. We spent uh, quite a few years in Berrien, but we had a lot of transitions in my life. Well, thank you for sharing. And I'm curious, too, on can you share with our listeners a little bit more about the the work that you do? I want to chat about the Washington Therapy Fund Foundation, but a little bit more just kind of you do a lot of different things. I do. I wear so many hats. <laughs> I do a lot of things. So I'm a clinician. I specialize in trauma, specifically racial trauma. Um, so I help individuals understand the impact that racism has on our mental health and ways to cope, um, as well as helping organizations maintain their mental health and create an anti-racist environment of wellness in which we can thrive in. I do a lot of work to decolonize therapeutic practices, a lot of advocacy. I'm a writer an author, a speaker, a facilitator, a wife, so many things. And most recently, the last couple of years, I started the Therapy Fund Foundation, which is a nonprofit organization dedicated toward eliminating barriers to Black healing. Um, most people know us for providing free therapy, but we really tackle all of the barriers when it comes to Black healing. So that's representation, that's tuition support, getting more Black clinicians out there, um, more culturally responsive clinicians, policy work, advocacy work, helping ensure that clinicians are compensated at a market level rate. Um, that was one of the things that really drove me into creating the Therapy Fund Foundation was to ensure community members could get free therapy, but also 
us who are the clinicians doing this hard necessary work are also paid because oftentimes people do not value our profession. And during the pandemic, when I started the foundation, every time I turned on the news, they were calling on therapists to volunteer their services to individuals who were grieving, not acknowledging that we too as clinicians were also grieving, we all were in this pandemic and then they wanted us to show up and volunteer. And now I do believe in giving back and services, the rent we pay to live on this earth, but it seemed like it was a disproportionate amount of call to actions for clinicians to work for free and provide free labor to the point states like New Jersey and New York were opening up reciprocity so that clinicians from other states could then provide virtual services or fly over to those states in a global pandemic and work for free. Oh, like <laughs> there's so much in there too with kind of this concept about like emotional energy and time and space. Cause like you're saying, like you gotta, it goes back to that old thing of like, you have to make sure your cup is full before you can fill into others or like make sure your safety mask is on first. Um, but yeah, I, I think about that too. when like dealing with insurances because outside of when I'm doing theater, I work with children with autism. So I'm a board certified behavior analyst. And so we credential with insurances, but it is a beast to try to understand it, to try to figure out what it is. And then just that, that sneaky trick of just like, okay, we approve. And then you send it all in and they're like, actually, never mind. Right. And that was one of the worst things, especially as a solo practitioner and most clinicians of color, especially black clinicians are solo practitioners. And then we have these insurance companies who offer us low reimbursement rates. It requires a lot of paperwork. And just like that scenario that you described, we do all of the work only to be told, oh, I'm sorry, you didn't have have the right ICD-10 code, or no, I'm sorry, we're not going to approve that. Not to mention insurance currently bills from a crisis-centered model and not a preventative one. And so I can have clients, but if they don't meet a DSM diagnosis, then insurance is not going to want to reimburse me. I mean, I can say they have an adjustment disorder for so long. They're adjusting, especially Black folks in America who are constantly adjusting to racism and all of these things. But at a certain point in time, they're going to start to be like, yeah, we need to see an actual diagnosis, which is how we have been harmed in the past from white providers who want to ensure that they're being paid and compensated. So then they, they put these labels and these diagnoses on us that we necessarily do not have just because one, they need to be paid. And uh, I'm going to say they're bipolar or I'm going to say they're schizophrenic or I'm going to put whatever is here. And then that's on your permanent record. I found that very interesting when I was reading up on you a little bit today before this about how um, you didn't want people to be stuck with those labels. That was one of the other reasons was because when you'd send those diagnoses in, they become part of the public. And then you were talking about like, if you want to apply for a job or you want to apply to get a gun license or any of those things, then that's part of the his your history. Or um, adopt a child. Or adopt a child, right, exactly. That becomes part of your history that could deny you those those entry points. So um, it's I, I'm just really excited about what you're doing and how did you, okay, so what got you to come to the idea of doing this in Washington and then that looks like you're expanding into California and are you thinking of going global? <laughs> you know? 
<laughs> absolutely, absolutely. But before I answer that question, I'm just going to circle back really quick just to say there is absolutely nothing wrong with having a diagnosis or a mental illness. One in five of us has a mental illness. So I think when you do actually have that, it can be really life-changing and, uh, you know, a sense of awareness. So there's nothing wrong with that, but it is harmful when we don't need that. So I just wanted to clarify that if anyone's listening and they're like, oh, well, I am bipolar. So yeah, no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Um, But yeah, absolutely. We plan to go global. Um, so again, as mentioned, I'm a Washington native, born and raised. It my it is my home. Um, during the pandemic, um, bought a couple properties. Uh, so I kind of go back and forth between Washington and California. Bought a house in um, San Diego when we had to shelter in place. And I'm like, if I got a shelter in place, I want to shelter where it's warm and there's palm trees and and beaches that I can see. Um, so with that said, we started expanding to California. Also, my dad just left Washington. Um, he'd been in Washington forever. He's originally from Missouri. So, um, bought him a house out there and just want to connect in the Midwest. And I have family all across the United States. And my goal, um, would be to find a million black people with free therapy and for us all to heal and people from all around the world have been reaching out even in Africa like how can we replicate the services that you're providing how can we do what you're doing and so the goal is to really have some sort of global network but that requires funding of course um starting in Washington the majority of our funding sources came from Washington. So we're going to allocate those dollars to serve Washington residents. So right now we're starting a pilot project in San Diego and we want to expand. And I have someone who's going to be working in Florida. They wanted to replicate the process. And so they're going to start one similarly um, in Florida. And I have a friend who started a Georgia therapy fund. It's not necessarily, um, how do I say this? It's more of a, a, we started as a GoFundMe, so she created a GoFundMe and she followed that and she reached out and she's like, I saw the GoFundMe you did for Washington. I want to create one for Georgia. And we had a conversation and I helped her and stuff like that. Um, And at that point, I didn't know much about how do you have like regional and I still don't, I'm still learning. We have some board fellows who are researching and looking at organizations like NAMI. NAMI is all everywhere. Um, there's a NAMI Seattle, a NAMI DC, a NAMI Chicago. Um, so how were they able to expand? YMCA. So looking at places, other nonprofit organizations that have chapters or regions or whatever the terminology is that they decided to name it um, for where they can um, start. And then what are other ways? Like what's the guideline, the, I don't know what you call it, the the book of rules so that you know the Therapy Fund Foundation is going to look the same, whether it be in Washington or it be in Nevada. That that kind of answered the question because I was I was trying to figure out how how did you get this idea and where did you and how did you start? And when you said I can tell you how I got the idea, that's an interesting story. (laughs) Okay. Good. Um, So during the pandemic, um, as I mentioned, I do a lot of consulting, a lot of advocacy work. Um, I specialize in racial trauma. So 
everyone was calling on me to talk to their organizations during the pandemic about racial trauma and uh, ways to heal because everyone was stressed out and, you know, uh, exacerbated racial stressors and nobody know what knew what to do and they knew putting a black box on their social media just wasn't enough. Um, so as I'm being called <laughs> to all these organizations, I kept hearing the same question from white folks. What can we do to help black people during this time? And I kept saying, well, you could pay for black people to get free therapy. Um, you know, no one ever sat us down after Jim Crow, um, slavery, watching our brothers and sisters be lynched. We never got any group therapy, therapy any collective healing. And so um, this gentleman, he sent me $10,000 and he was like, use this for your black clients. And I posted about it on LinkedIn and Facebook and all the good white folks and other allies were like, I want to give too. And then um, made a GoFundMe. We made almost $100,000 like right away. And then other organizations were calling the news. MSNBC did a spotlight on us. King 5, Seattle Times. It blew up really quick. And Seattle Storm was like, well, I want to give y'all some money, but you need to be a 501c3. And so I went back to social media uh, uh, the Seattle Storm wants to give us this money, but they want us to be a, a, a nonprofit. I don't know anything about that. So I got a hundred messages. I can fiscally sponsor you, but guess what? They wanted money. <laughs> and I was like, why are all these people trying to fiscally sponsor me and take a percentage of the money? And I didn't understand it. I've worked for nonprofits, but I had no idea about starting one, but I knew that there had to be something to this. And if everybody, I'm getting hundreds of emails. I'm like, I think I can do it myself. And uh, social media, I was like, everyone's asking me to fiscally sponsor me. Who knows about starting a nonprofit? Monica from Queen Care responded. She's like, this is what I do. I can get you set up in, uh, it was like nine weeks. I can have it fast tracked. She's like, you need a board. I need a board. <laughs> so we did all of the things. And then it's like, okay, we need articles of incorporation, bylaws. What's your mission going to be? And that's when it's like, okay, let's actually have a vision for this. Let's plot it out. But it happened so fast that I got the, that $10,000 from that gentleman, May 2020. We became an official nonprofit, August 2020. And, you know, a lot of good people raised their hands to join the board. So here we are three years later, really working to establish a good, solid working board. Um, and it's it's been a learning process. It's also been far beyond anything I could have ever dreamed. And I learned a lot. I even went back to school. I did a certification at Harvard where you stay there for a couple weeks on campus and got certified in nonprofit management. Um, just to really understand the intricacies of nonprofit world, um, which has been kind of a double-edged sword. Like I'm reading this book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, and it talks a lot about the nonprofit industrial complex and how, you know, we as Black folks, like, are we sitting here begging, begging these funders to, to fund uh, social issues that has been caused by the dominant society. <laughs> and now we got to kind of shuck and jive to get some money for policies and systems of oppression. Um, so it's just, it's been interesting. <laughs> I'll say that. But that is the origin story and how it came to be. It was just, you know, 
everyone wanting to know how they can help. Well, pay for us to get therapy. That's how you can help. And they have helped. And they've paid for over 5,000 therapy sessions and peer support services. And we've been able to award almost $30,000 in tuition support. Um, so we've done a lot in just three short years. Wow. That, uh, the turnaround of you getting your nonprofit, mm-hmm. that was like amazingly fast. I mean, Shout out to Monica. Is <laughs> Monica who does queen care with the, the products yep. of- Yep. Oh, I've purchased her candles before. Oh, that's cool. Yes. I, so she's she, Keela. <laughs> you know Keela, uh, Keela from Katie Hall Foundation? Uh-uh. Okay, yeah. So she helped Keela set her foundation up. And Katie Hall Foundation is very, very successful. They are doing amazing things for young girls um, in Washington State. And it's, it's, it's beautiful. And so, yeah, both of them really came together. And they're like, if you want to do this, you can do this. And I was like, yeah, let's, <laughs> let's go ahead and do it. Because there's my email was overloaded. I mean, folks wanted to give, people wanted to help. And of course, you know, they wanted that tax write-off and they weren't going to give right. that donating to GoFundMe. Right. Yep. And part of me was just wanting to, you know, I'm like, I, I don't want to give y'all a percentage. I don't even know you guys. Now you're messaging me. You want to be a fiscal sponsor? What? Yep. There's, in the in the theater world, we have, I was like, Ty's probably going to have to cut this or we're going to get doxxed. But there's, there's organization that's like we'll we'll oversee you we'll hold your status for you but they will just like take 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 your money and like not help not in not give you that training kind of like you're talking about this certification i'm sure that's a game changer to have an under a better understanding it was not cheap that was like a seven thousand dollar training it didn't include the room and board didn't include my flight to boston um, but yeah, it was not cheap. So I know a lot of small led uh, nonprofits do not have the ability to do that. And it just seemed really fishy to me at the time. And I just was like, and it was people from all over the world because I ended up appearing on MSNBC and Oprah did a special on us. And um, it just was global. And I'm just like, um, I can do this. <laughs> Yeah. And there were days when I feel like I can't do it and I've wanted to quit and it has been extremely hard. I was even hospitalized um, during the pandemic with an ocular migraine mm. because I was on the computer 17 hours a day Oof. and I had never heard of blue light. Um, but I ended up losing my vision and it was from overexposure to blue light. Wow. I did not even know that that was a thing, but yeah, I did for so many That's hours. You need those blue light. Blo- I have some glasses I ordered from HSN that are blue light blockers. Uh-huh. I have them now. And you know, I have it all on all my phone, my devices. So I have it all. Um, and also I was doing way too much when I first started this foundation. I was doing the speaking, the consulting, my therapy practice, hospice therapy, um, so I scaled back significantly. Um, I stopped doing hospice therapy um, and only see a few clients just to really get this in a place to be able to grow and build a good solid team. And then the goal is, you know, I'll be able to take on more clients, stuff like that. Um, but I was just doing way, way too much at that time. And I thought I could because I wasn't driving to Beacon Hill. Um, I was living in Kent at the time. So my off my therapy office was in Beacon Hill. So I'm like, okay, that takes out my commute time. So yes, I can see you. 
And also I would get the really sad stories, you know, no one's ever seen a black therapist and they've been looking and looking. So I just wanted to say yes to everyone. And I was, but it was not my detriment. Yep, exactly. It is so hard to find a, a, a black therapist. And, and I was looking at some of your other articles and just talking about being able to go into a therapist and know there's certain things that are unspoken that are going to be understood that you don't have to explain to somebody because they're you know, it's like, well, uh, yeah, you're not going to get this. You know, when you said mama's, mama's, what would you say? Something about mama's house or something? Big mama, yeah. And then nobody was like, they'd be like, huh? What are you talking about? Right. There's this thing that we don't have to explain when we're talking to us. Right. This is someone who actually right. understands and aligns with our culture because we know all skin folk and kin folk and I. Had black therapists who did not understand black culture and we're looking at each other like, huh, what? So that was a very, (laughs) I read a book about my own personal therapy experiences, which led me, I wanted to be a lawyer, but I was like, this can't be what people are exposed to. I got to do better. So I did a whole 360 and I'm like, you know what? I'm going to study psychology and I'll become a clinician because if this is what people are experiencing, it's it's not okay. Um, so yeah, maybe one day I'll write those stories. Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, and I feel like that goes into all these, like to talk about these different stories and how they impact our lives and like having these different moments that lead to these realizations about like, okay, where do I fit in to the big picture of things? Because where you were like, oh, okay, this is going to be a route. Having all these different experiences made you like, oh, wait a minute. We need to, we need to switch gears a little bit. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. So you're talking a little bit, you name-dropped a book, The Revolution Will Not Be Funded. So I'm curious, um, are you reading anything right now? Is there anything you'd like to like shout out book-wise that you would recommend to us in general? I'm reading a million books. So I listen to Audible. <laughs> I read um, a couple books like a half an hour out of here, out of there. So for fun, when I'm getting my lashes done, <laughs> I will listen to Children of Blood and Bone. <laughs> and I love that book. Um, I, I feel like I listen to it each last appointment. I still have like maybe seven hours left of it. Um, they're supposed to be filming a movie on it, but it's it's really good. Aside from that, the revolution will not be funded. That's kind of dry, so it's taking me some time to get through it. Um, I just finished, gosh, it was like Black Grief. What was it? That was really good. It brought me back to my hospice days. I've been listening to The Rest is Resistance by Trisha Hersey. Love that book. The Rest is Resistance book. It's like game changer. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've been listening to that and going back and forth between that and Monsters in Love and actually reading, reading, not listening to uh, Mother Hunger, which I've read that before. Um, just a lot of things have been coming up. Mother's Day is around the corner. So 
I recently pulled out mother hunger to talk about some mother wounds and just having conversations with my clients who have been having those mother wounds. And even within my own family, some of the things that we've been addressing with um, our mothers and, and how that's impacted us and how we show up, me and my sisters and cousins and stuff have all kind of been having conversations about mom. <laughs> And I think it's it's just one of those particular times where it's the theme that's coming up in the clients and in my own life with my family, my friends. Well, I don't know that book. I'm going to have to try read that one. Yeah, it's really good. It talks about the different mother wounds, the different types of mothering styles and how those attachments have formed the ways in which we show up um, and different styles from like those who internalize things and are impasse. That's me, the very emotional person I'm also a cancer <laughs> summer baby but yeah or the externalizers and it's it's really powerful it's written by a white woman she does acknowledge like her privilege and how there's certain things that impact uh, people of color with their mom experience if you're looking for a book from a person of color about moms I would say surviving mama and now that's all about the black mom experience that is so that is such a helpful like list of books because like I'm just gonna share a little bit too because like I have been learning more about this concept of of like the the mother wound in in general but it's a little bit of a tricky thing that I am dealing with because like I am a multiracial person of color and I was raised by a white woman so like some things that we talk about in these communities of color where I'm like oh I can kind of relate to that because like my mom was a single mom and like she had these other kind of expectations but then we go back to them like, but my mom didn't travel through the world as a black woman and how that disconnect for us can be bigger in certain places. I know how we're talking about this, like therapists of color and like how you kind of like don't have to explain some things to people. Whereas like, I'm here with my mom just like, okay, mom, I don't think that's okay. This is why. Like things yeah. like that. It's all, it's life experience. You just learn so much as you continue on through life. Definitely, definitely. <laughs> Do you have any books that talk about epigenetics and how that's all marking us that you uh, think would be really good for people to read? Yes, absolutely. It, I think it's called It Didn't Start With You. I'm looking at my bookcase now. Oprah the opener. So that's um, a really great book. It Didn't Start With You. If you're looking into epigenetics, um, also... Not fully. I mean, post-traumatic slave syndrome um, by Dr. Joy DeGruy touches on that. Um, Bessel Vandercook's uh, The Body Keeps the Score. I'm looking at my bookcase. Yeah, I have that one. I have It's kind of dense. I haven't so. totally gotten into it, though, yet. But The Body Keeps the Score, I have that book. Yeah, I've got to read it a little bit more. <laughs> very it's very clinical. I enjoy it. But it, it goes through the different um, clinical practices and all of the different ways and how trauma shows up in the body and how those different modalities are used. So I could see how someone with a non-clinical lens would be like, oh, this is dense. That's how I felt about the revolution will not be funded. Like it's really good, but it's also dense and very much nonprofit language and stuff that I'm trying to acclimate and get into and just but yeah it's interesting but I have I read so many books like I said audio and anytime I'm sitting for a long period of time whether I'm flying on a plane or getting my lashes done I'm like okay let's listen to an audio or as I'm cleaning and I'll go for a 
I'll switch different ones, whether it's my fun, Children of Blood and Bone, or, you know, The Rest is Resistance, or anything like that. Oh, that's what I was looking up. The book I just read about grief. That was so good. Oh, Grieving While Black, Brisha Wade. And um, I added her on LinkedIn and she sent me a message. She's like, I just ordered your book. I "I love your book. So I wish I would have found her um, sooner because I would have invited her to speak at our conference. So I'm going to have her speak next year. But this book is so, so, so good. Grieving While Black. And she was a hospice chaplain, and I used to be a hospice therapist. Well, thank you for your book list, Ashley. I'll have to definitely check some of those out. Um, so, uh, when we're talking about like therapy and our BIPOC communities uh, accessing therapy, what are some of the largest hurdles that they've run into uh, when trying to access therapy resources? Um, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but the biggest barrier is really going to be finding a culturally responsive clinician because there are so few of us um, being a Black clinician, you're a unicorn. A clinician of color in general, um, many of us have long wait lists, we're overworked, overwhelmed, oftentimes underpaid. And I didn't even, I'm not even mentioning finances because you can have the money or the insurance to have a therapist, but even with the money and the insurance or a fund like the free therapy fund, you then have to find someone. And that's what we often say to our community who comes to us. Now we have a partnership agreement with over a hundred clinicians who agree to see our clients, but it can be still very challenging just as things change with the clinicians, clinicians move, they change their the number of clients that they're seeing. So that really is the biggest barrier is finding someone um and then finding someone who can meet your needs who you can connect with because seeing a therapist is like dating you know so you really got to find that good fit but i think that's the biggest one finding clinicians who understand um the impact that racism has on our mental health um who understand things from a systemic level because as clinicians we're focused on the individual And we're helping you to heal individual things, but things that have been placed on you individually by society. So how can I help you if you're unhoused? How can I help you to feel good when you still have to go go out and sleep on the street? So these are oftentimes issues. And then when we're talking about private practice, you're typically not even going to see an unhoused person come into a private practice. They're going to end up going to a clinic, um, sound mental health, uh, different different organizations. And of course, I'm speaking to places in Washington. But yeah, those those are some of the biggest barriers. And of course, then we could talk money. Then we can talk about insurance, Um, Medicaid, very few clinicians of color take Medicaid. I personally don't take Medicaid. They don't even pay enough. And then they want me to fill out a 10 page dissertation. So no. Thank you for sharing that, Ashley. Yeah. It's crazy. Cause I've never really thought about like, it is deeper than money. You know, when you, when we think about the people who can't access therapy and don't access therapy, I feel like the first thing that comes to our head is, oh, they've must not be able to afford it or their insurance doesn't cover it but it does go a lot deeper than um just actually being able to get into the door you know it's who's helping you once you're inside you know and that um that can make a big difference on someone's therapy experience me for myself I've only gone to therapy once and the one time I did go it took a lot of energy and like just 
thought and willpower to build up the courage to go. And then, you know, the the therapist, he pretty much just tried to tell me that I was addicted to marijuana. And he was just like stuck on that. You know, it's like I felt like he didn't see anything else that I told him. And he just kind of even like the more um, he tried to recommend me to like another like addiction therapy thing or something like that. And I'm like, you didn't hear like anything else. You didn't try to connect with anything else that I was going through. And I think if I would have had like a person of color who might've had an upbringing similar to mine or like a lifestyle similar to mine um, at my age, of course, uh, it could have played a whole different, um, like played out a whole different thing for me, way for me, you know, Uh, my therapy experience would have been completely different. And I'm sure it's like that uh, for a lot of other people who, you know, like you said, it's like dating, you know, you have to find a therapist that really connects with you and um, really understands and can relate to what you're going through. So thank you for sharing that. And thank you for sharing that. And I will say that clinician was very by the book because that is how we are taught. And so the uniquely creative thing about clinicians of color is that we know how to pivot. We know how to navigate. We've been code switching and all of these different things. But when we look at the way in which we're educated and how we're taught to go out into the field, we're told that until we address addiction, we can't address anything else. So what a clinician may hear is the addiction hasn't been addressed. We have to do that first. We can't talk about anything else. We can't pivot because they don't know how to navigate. And these are the waters in which people of color, we've been knowing how to pivot. So I have clients who have addictions and I know how to navigate, but I do always bring them back to center because that is correct. You have to address the addiction before you can bring up anything else. But I would, you know, have those conversations with that that individual and be like, okay, we could talk about this, but hey, I'm gonna need you to see these because I personally don't specialize in addiction. And so that is a requirement for my work, but I'm not gonna stop seeing you. I'm not gonna stop talking about it with you. I'm not gonna will solely focus on the addiction um, and talk about that. But I will say they were following the book and that is how we are taught, but they don't teach us how to navigate those waters. It takes a lot of experience um, for a clinician to be able to pivot, Um, but we're trained. Oh, you hear an addiction. Let's not talk about anything else because that's literally what they tell us. When we have to pass that test to get certified by the Department of Health in whatever state we're practicing in, that's what it says to do. <laughs> but then when you get in the real world, things don't work like that. It's like, okay, yes, that is an issue. But this is what the client wants to talk about today. Um, with me, uh, I'm cash pay. So oftentimes they're paying for themselves or an organization, a foundation is covering it or their EAP, because I do take employee assistance programs um, and take some insurances. But, um, you know, oftentimes it's coming out their pocket. So it's like it's an investment or whatever the case may be. So I want them to get the most out of it. And if you feel it's most productive to talk about your uh, boyfriend drama and you don't want to address X, Y, and Z, Sure, we could talk about that. But then it's like, okay, how many times are we only focusing on that? Because I'm a solution-focused clinician, so I'm always pivoting. What do you want to get out of this? Sometimes you need the space just to complain, but it's like, okay, do you want a solution? Do you want to be able to process that? Do you want to address that? Do you want to see what childhood trauma it was linked to? What attachment, whatever the case 
Um, but I think it's important to have those conversations and explain. But yeah, some clinicians just don't know how to deviate, but it was very by the book. They did what they were told to do. It's so funny that you say that too, because this has been like years. So now it's like all making sense in my head. I'm like, ah, oh, it wasn't like, you know, he thought I was just a junkie. He was just, you know. That's what we had to do. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, thanks. It, I feel like a weight has been lifted off my shoulders. <laughs> Good. I'm I'm happy <laughs> that weight could be lifted. But yeah, definitely. We're not supposed to move forward because the way that... Um, issues process, they always say that addiction is number one. And until that's addressed, nothing else can be addressed. But I don't believe that there are, I mean, of course, that's going to be a big barrier and you do need to go to that and you can have other conversations, but you just have to be skilled as a clinician to navigate those waters and get back to it and make those referrals and um, get individuals into groups or connected to other people. If it sounds like that person wasn't skilled, not skilled, because I wouldn't say that. I mean, I'm not skilled in it either, but that's not their specialty. So I have people in the community that I partner with. William Castillo, he specializes in addiction, especially gambling addiction. So I will always send people to William and he's my best friend's dad. <laughs> oh my gosh. You know, it, it, listening to that, too, is, it makes me think about the whole, the beginning of the conversation when you were bringing in Griot and Gria and the whole African pantheon and how of thinking in this more holistic way. That is a very kind of boxed in way of thinking of therapy. It's like, well, did the addiction come first or did the other things come to create the addiction and how did they feed into each other? They're not just one or the other. It's not black and white. All those things are woven together and you have to start picking apart the little strands to figure out how they got stuck together. Um, so, yeah, that's a really boxed in way of thinking, a very clinical way yep. of you know, so, yeah. And I went to University of Washington, and so they have a social justice focus, and so they do talk about the systemic issues, but still, because that's the way, you know, you have to do that. So it's like, okay, we know these are the other causes, but it's like, in knowing that, then why don't we pivot? And I have an intern from UW right now, and I love this new class of people who are um, getting their degrees from University of Washington, because my cohort, I thought we were at advocates but they're like speaking out about the way these processes are happening and <laughs> my intern was telling me she's like yeah we've been t- complaining about the curriculum the books um we're advocating to have paid internships I was like I was out there working for free <laughs> y'all are getting paid but I was like yes why didn't we think to ask to be paid um but I just love this new group and the new literature that they've got brought in um they now have Resma Mannequins, My grandma, my Grandmother's Hands, Healing from Racialized Trauma. So that's something that they're being taught within the program. Um, I didn't have that <laughs> literature. So th- this kind of goes into our next question, which is about what are the co- some common misconceptions about mental wellness in communities of color? Um, well, I will say the number one thing is that mental illness is a white thing. And that's because, you know, obviously, historically, it's been afforded to those who are affluent, which happen to be white folks. Um, 
it's been extremely harmful for us. There's a misconception that if you talk to a clinician, you're going to lose your children and that it's not actually a safe space because historically it hasn't been a safe space and folks have lost their children. And so I think there needs to be more community conversations about the process and about the ways that individuals are going about to disrupt the system and provide care and provide culturally um, responsive care. So there's a lot, those are some of the biggest misconceptions. Um, I would just say, let's see, what's another misconception about mental wellness? That it's not for us but it's our birthright. We were all meant to be well. Um, I I don't think that we were put on this earth not to feel well, but some of us feel like, you know, we're supposed to feel pain and we're supposed to suffer. Um, I was talking to someone and they were telling me this whole story about like, we're the fallen angels and we're supposed to be on earth feeling pain. And I'm like, I don't know where you read that at, but I'm not here to feel pain. I felt a lot of pain. I'm trying to experience joy. Um, But I think we just have that misconception that we just have to hurt. And our ancestors did, you know, they experienced a lot of pain and they persevered and they just went on and we have to hold on until, you know, we get to the afterlife and then we'll experience joy. Um, But the God that I believe in, I feel like we can experience joy on earth and that we don't have to wait. And that there are ways that we can be well mentally and physically. And somewhere along the line, someone told us a lie that we can't be well. Yes. Well, thank you for that. And I'm curious, too, it kind of sounds like we're going this direction. But how do we normalize this conversation around therapy and mental wellness? Yeah, um, I think we normalize the conversations by going back to what we opened up about, which was storytelling. It's through telling our stories. Someone needs to hear your story. Someone needs to know what you went through and how you got through. Um, That is very important, especially from someone who looks like us. I grew up in predominantly white environments. I wasn't seeing Black folks talking about what they were going through. It was just, you know, pray about it. But faith without works is dead. You can pray and see a therapist. You can pray and do Reiki. You can pray and pray. Like all of these things, it's not one or the other. Um, And I think it's important for us to hear that. Um, I was, gosh, something... I think it was Michelle, uh, Michelle Obama's not becoming whatever her, not whatever, but her last book that she just wrote, she went on tour and they posted it, the video on um, Netflix and I was watching it and she was talking about how she kind of had a bout with like anxiety and depression and everyone was like, oh my gosh, the first lady, because you know, she's our forever first lady, experience these things and sometimes we look at people through a lens and we don't see the humanity in them. We don't see that they too can experience anxiety or depression. And I think it's important to hear that from people like Michelle Obama, but also our neighbors, because we may not encounter the Michelle Obamas, but we know Stephanie down the street. We know Tyrell. We we know these people. We know the Ashleys. We know the individuals within our communities, but they're not talking about it. They're not sharing their stories. And I was one. I was depressed for a very, very long time. I spent most of my childhood in a state of depression after um, the death of my grandmother. And I remember going to class and they would give you these little sheets to fill out about your mood. And I would always lie 
lies. Like, are you feeling depressed? Are you feeling sad? And something somewhere, somebody told me like, it, I shouldn't say that. Like I felt shame and I felt guilt as a, a very young child. I knew that I shouldn't be check marking that. So I'm going to check. Yes, I feel fine. And a lot of us are, are check marking the yes, I feel fine, but we're not fine. And we look fine on the outside because so many of us are high functioning. In the pandemic, there was a rise of folks in New York just jumping from buildings, ending their lives, beauty queens, actors, like all, all kinds of folks. And everyone was like, I never expected. I think about the Robin Williams or again, the Stephanie's down the street who may not get the special that Robin Williams did um, or Jet Jackson or all of the other celebrities we know who have ended their lives. Yeah, that's so true. You know, Um, so tell us, uh, tell us about your books. I tried to travel it away really is the story of how I was healing my depression. As I shared with y'all, I experienced a lot of depression following the loss of my grandmother. So it started out as grief, which is completely normal and then turned into major depression. And also, as mentioned earlier, I grew up in predominantly white environments around a lot of like wealthy white folks who oftentimes would spend their summers gallivanting all around the world. And I spent my summers at the park, which I loved and I enjoyed those those moments with my siblings and family. But I just remember hearing their stories and thinking, when I get older, I'm going to go everywhere that they have gone. And I've been to every place they've talked about and more. I've been to over 50 countries, but I didn't realize that I was traveling because I didn't want to be at home. I didn't like home. Um, I didn't like the life that I was living at that particular time. And I'm a millennial and I would look to my peer groups and everyone was like, uh, catch flights, not feelings, all these little sayings like, oh, I need a vacation anytime we're stressed out. But then I started acknowledging like, yeah, we're catching these flights and we're leaving, but sometimes the stress is still following us on that trip. People are still texting us, harassing us, all the problems, all the things. Or even if we are we have our phone shut off, when we come back, we're still stressed. We're still exhausted. So this is really a story of how we can unpack our baggage before we leave and so that we don't use flights as a way to cope and to heal. Like we should travel because we want to explore and see the world because there's just so many vast places and people and food and things to experience, which I also acknowledge is a privilege because as I mentioned, I was not able to go these places. Um, my mom was raising five kids, so she definitely wasn't taking us across the globe at that time. You know, we went down to the neighborhood park. And so I understand that it is a privilege to get a passport and fly and all of these things that come with travel. But whether it's traveling across the globe or it's traveling from Seattle to Tacoma or Eastern Washington or Soap Lake, which is a beautiful hidden gem that I just exposed <laughs> um, in Washington, um, you know, you still have to unpack your baggage and heal. And then the mental health survival kit way for people who are doing work in social justice, civil rights movements to also manage their mental health. Um, I was watching a, a profound documentary. I think it's called Who Killed Malcolm X on Netflix. And the way in which they told his life, it was in a way I had never told it before. I heard it told before, speaking of storytelling, 
But there was a gentleman who was being interviewed and he was saying how Malcolm X didn't have any money. The Nation of Islam was was kicking him out of his home. Um, He probably had a dollar to his name, all of these different things. And he had really lost his mind the way he started speaking out publicly and the things that he was saying. But what stood out for me in that documentary as they're describing how Malcolm X was during the last um, part of his life they said he needed a therapist. They were like, the thing Malcolm X needed most was he needed a therapist. And I was like, I wonder how his life would have been impacted had he had a mental health therapist, had he have had someone who was there supporting him or Martin Luther King or anyone else, Reverend Jesse Jackson, all of these individuals, like who is their support system? Because it's it's tough. I think about, gosh, who's the lawyer? Attorney Ben Crump. I follow him on Instagram. I, I, I hide his post because it's like every five minutes, it's just a brutal murder. And these are the things that he's exposed to. And I'm sure thousands of people are calling him every time their family member is gunned down. And so that, that takes a lot on your mental health. So this was a survival kit for individuals who are doing that work. And you don't have to be the Malcolm X, the, the Ben Crumps, all, all of these individuals, the Reverend Jesse Jackson, the Stephanie's down the street who are showing up at the protest still managing they're still seeing the jordan neely's um being killed publicly um the george floyd's the brianna taylor's because i think it's important to name black women because oftentimes their names are not acknowledged and ashley also where can we find your book um so you can find them where all books are sold barnes and noble amazon everywhere anywhere you could find books the mental health survival kit is just really a guide that i put out and you have to get that on my website at ashleymcgirt.com so all of this is really exciting and what's the what's the next thing that you're doing and how can we find out how can our listeners follow you and find out what you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. So what's next for me um, and the foundation in which I founded the Therapy Fund Foundation, we are having a summer fundraiser, uh, summer B-Day fundraiser, because it's also my birthday, June 21st. So when we first started in the pandemic, we would always have birthday fundraisers for different board members, people in the community, and they would use their birthday as a time to uh, get donations to support our free therapy programs. So this is going to be our first one that's in person because we've always done it online and virtually, and it's going to be an opportunity for folks in the community to meet our board, our staff, um, just know about the good work that we're doing. That is going to be local in Seattle. We also are having our inaugural behavioral health conference, Reclaiming Wellness, July 21st. That's going to be at Green River Community College in Auburn. Um, If you're not local, it is hybrid, so you can um, tune in virtually. Um, What's next for me is just rest and ease. Um, I already told y'all I was listening to Rest is Resistance and just finding ways to um, enjoy this life. We're all living on borrowed time. And so I just think it's important to do the thing that you love um, while you're here on earth. Um, I have a goal to start a group practice, um, create a space for Black healers, and that's any type of healers from therapists, um, Reiki, all kinds of different things, because 
I, I don't think that it has to be one way. As I mentioned earlier, it's not only this, it can be this. And so I just want a space for us collectively as a people, as a community to come to and heal. So those are some of the things, and I listed a lot, but definitely going to be resting and taking breaks and uh, playing my good music and just dancing and laughing and having fun as much as possible. I love that. That's good advice. That's like our sign off for our listeners. So <laughs> thank you for that. Just a reminder, rest and dance. That's what I have to finish dinner right now. That's really, what, <laughs> that's really what I'm about to do. I know my husband and the kids are like, when's she coming downstairs? Oh. And it's a special recipe. So I'm like, y'all gonna have to wait. Oh, okay. <laughs> I love it. Well, thank you for taking some time out oh of your gosh. very busy, very busy day, very busy schedule to like come and chat with us. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Absolutely. I love it. We got to do this again. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other mirror stage programming, you can make a tax deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org or text play it smart to 206-888-6477 that's 206-888-MIRR hi i'm glad you made it yeah i know i thought it was the 20th and then i looked at the calendar and i'm like that's a whole Another, yeah, which we have to do yeah, research for. Right. But this is, but no, it's good that you got to join because I reached out to Angie because I, when I was researching Ashley, I was like, Angie, you're not going to want to miss this. Like, I was like, I know you're busy and I know you're like, I need to rest. But I was like, she is so fascinating. And the stuff she's doing for the culture and like for Washington and California in general is just amazing. Yeah. And I really look forward to seeing this yeah. like global scale that she has I'm a vision for. I'm just so, I mean, I'm like glad you sort of pushed me because like today I got home from running errands and stuff. Like, okay, I got to go online and read about this woman. So I was like doing my homework before I signed on. I was like, boy, she's really cool. <laughs> you know? yeah. yeah, really cool. And and she's local. I mean, she's not someone who's going to be hard to to get to or anything. So that that's great. And finding out that the woman who does queen care helped her out and, and can help set women up with their own 501c3s. I was like, whoa, okay, I need to know about this. <laughs> you know? So, I know, when we started yeah, chatting a little awesome. bit about like, when she was like, oh, do you know something? Oh, I bet you, six degrees of separation, we can figure out between this like group, who do you know that I know that also knows so-and-so? Like, it's so right. small. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, all these books, I mean, it's like, whoop. A lot of reading to read here. <laughs> I'm gonna have to do Audible so I can just listen to it. <laughs> yeah, but some of them sound so good. Like, um, it's not on here, but uh, my grandmother's hands. Somebody else said something about that. I feel like I've heard it mentioned like three or four times in the my last two months or so. Oh, and, um, I have that. I have that book too. And isn't it funny, Ty? Because Angie, at our last staff meeting not too long ago, I was just talking about the book. Um, that she had recommended that it didn't start with you. I was just talking to the staff about mm-hmm. how like that book's just fascinating and another one about generational trauma. And mm-hmm. the My Grandmother's Handbook is another one about generational trauma, but also as a concept of like what lives in our bodies and how right. we feel throughout a throughout interactions and how that can 
hinder us in our interactions and how we can like take notice of it and change it in some capacity so that our day doesn't go down this dark path, things like that. Right. Yeah. And it's really, really helpful when you do find that out through self-reflection and therapy. It's like, oh, that's my mother. (laughs) It doesn't have anything to do with me. Or I'm acting towards this person the way I'm getting triggered the way my mother triggered me. It's like, Mm -hmm. this is not that person. So why am I allowing that? You know, it's like, yeah, drop it. (laughs) You know, it's like, no. Um, But finding that out is very important, I think, for moving forward and understanding, especially when they're those kinds of reactions that make no sense. Why am I reacting to this person like this? Mm -hmm. You know, it's so deep and so, you know, reactionary. And there's like, I'm not reacting to what's in front of me right now. (laughs) Coming from somewhere else. (laughs) And I, I found myself in that situation a lot where I'm like so triggered and so upset by something. And then like hours later i'm like you know that was like not a big deal like it doesn't matter like tomorrow a year from now definitely not even gonna remember it you know so it's just i i haven't even it was so hard to wrap my head around like like pass pass down trauma because i'm like what could possibly could my grandmother have that is still affecting me now? But then I think about, well, I was raised by my mother who was raised by my grandmother. And I think now it's at the forefront because I'm like, what can I pass down to my daughter? And what, how can I make sure I'm passing down the healthiest things to her and not, you know, these little random temper tantrum internal moments that, you know, I have because I I didn't think it would be I've never thought of it as trauma. I just thought I like, you know, like young black men, things piss me off, you know. It's just like how it how it is, you know. But that's that's trauma. It's all trauma. So I I definitely have work to do to work through my trauma. And I hope our listeners, if you know, if you're like me and you know, traffic lights make you angry, then you probably also need, <laughs> need to go to therapy. Oh, well, traffic lights make me really angry. <laughs> I have to like, <sighs> this is funny, but not funny. Traffic lights do not make me angry only because I reframe it as like a this is a moment of mindfulness. But again, this came from years of yoga, therapy, self-reflection, patience, all those things. Um I, are you guys in therapy? Yes. No. Unfortunately I not. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was I, I was in therapy. Time, you know. No. You could not tell us. I know. No, you're not wrong though. But like I, I was like, this this goes to back to this like access and ability. Because there are these resources, I'm sure you've heard them tie about like better help, where it's like, yeah, this is a resource that's like in theory more affordable, but then it's a little shady in practices where there's things like that where it's like I don't want to sacrifice ethics but I can't afford to go into somewhere schedule it weekly make sure I'm on time make sure my parking's paid make sure this appointment is paid because it's probably not going to be paid for by insurance because of how our insurance system works in America um but it just makes it more and more like less and less attainable hi I'm gonna say go we we'll probably do one of these one day of just like going on to the therapy fund, <laughs> checking it out, seeing what I seeing what study. resources we get. 
no, I'm going sure. to a country doctor and, and Carolyn Down Clinic. I found a, a black woman therapist through the, through country doctor Carolyn Downs, and you know they let you pay what you can if you don't have any insurance. And uh, luckily, I found a, a black woman who's in her sixties, so like I've got a peer. Oh wow, yeah, yeah, nice. yeah. So um, and you know that's a resource for uh, therapy because they do have some therapists there that aren't that just aren't body therapists. They have you know, some, you know, that's a good resource to look into. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm in the same boat where I was, I was going to therapy regularly for a very long time, but then when I moved and just kind of my schedule, it became harder to schedule and to like make time for and like set aside and be like, yes, I can do this at this time. But when you're in that like hustle culture, grind culture, having to be in 10 places at once, it yep. kind of makes it impossible. and like. Just that consistent pressure of like, I know I should be doing this thing. I know I should be making time for this, but do I have the time? I don't. I have time right now. Or at 10 o'clock at night, I have an hour window. And you're like, no one's trying yeah. to listen and to if I'm doing therapy on my phone at 10 o'clock p.m. in between work. Yeah, that is counter <laughs> counterproductive <laughs> AF. <laughs> That's yeah. just like even just thinking about BetterHelp, like the commercial. The best thing in my head about BetterHelp is like the commercials because, like, if if I they're constantly on my YouTube. I watch YouTube like every day, and I see a BetterHelp commercial every day, and they're such great commercials. But I'm just like, I am. I cannot just imagine doing therapy online. Like, I need to go to someone and just have that because. If I do it online, it's gonna feel like another meeting or something to me, you know. And it's just, yeah, I, I can, I can't, I can't do it that way. Yeah. So I definitely like want to make time to like try to find um, a therapist. Um, but I also think like reading some of the books um, mm-hmm. on this list and just like like just knowing more and just getting a better understanding of. Um, of how like grief and trauma and all of that works in in us um, especially as black people because it's different you know it's definitely different for everybody but different for um, us Um, and I just have to you know I have to wrap my head around it a little better and just get more information about it yeah it's very interesting to know you know the amount of daily um, guarding that we have to do, you know, that, that is part of being a person of color in the culture. You know, it's like you, there's a level of constant stress that, uh, you don't think, you don't consciously think about all the time, but then you wonder, why am I so dang tired? (laughs) You're just screaming crap all the time. You know, that was one thing I found about the play when I went to my therapy session, it was like, all I did was talk about the play because the play is talking about all that stuff that's going on. And then you come out and then you're dealing with it. And then it's on the news and it's just like, Oh my God. (laughs) There's no break from it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. But that's why I like also what Ashley said about rest. Um, Yes. You know, like I, I miss, I'm sure she said more about rest earlier that I missed. But just like what she said about the end, about like um, how she was going to prioritize rest and um, that 
resting is resistance to and I don't know the specific but in my mind it's resistance to you know what our culture tells us is telling us like you have to work you have to like make money you have to be a provider I'm like yeah Yeah. all that is true but you also have to like take a second breathe like I just tweeted yesterday that I don't remember the last time that I went on vacation because I really don't like I've gone home to visit family and stuff like that but it's been a couple years since I've just like not like worked for a bit and like just not thought about work um and I and I don't want to you know it's also like I'm not prioritizing that like I I want to make more money I'm trying to see like what else I can do and it needs to be like I need to I definitely need to like realize that you just can't work and work and work and work yes because you need that time because it's not a matter like it's a matter of like Yes, needing to make more money, but it's like, I need to make more money hourly as opposed to I have to work 20 hours because I can't make X amount hourly. Mm -hmm. Capitalism. Yeah. Like raise your prices. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I think like in my head, it's always, I've always been told, you know, like work while you can, because, you know, when you get older, you're not going to want to work and stuff. And I feel like that has created like a cramming kind of mentality in my head. Like I have to like be a millionaire before 35 or something like that. So I can, you know, chill the later. But I feel like if I do that, then I'm probably going to die by the time I'm 40 from exhausting or something like that, you know? Yeah. That's um, a good point. Yeah. That's a good point. Well, and I wonder too, I think about that yeah. with this mentality as we talk about generations and generational trauma with, cause it's like, at least I don't know from your experience, please let me know, but it seems like older generations didn't have necessarily said freedom to be like, oh, I like the work that I do. So like, I could do this for a while because I exactly. I like it. I enjoy this as opposed to like, oh, it's my job. I got to go in, work at a factory like for 50 hours a week. And then I get home and then I sleep and then I go back and do it all again. And then eventually I retire. Or like well, you don't get to retire. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have that because it took me until recently as an adult to figure out why I don't understand the concept of vacations. was <laughs> because my family never took any. And I'm like, well, why is that? Well, I grew up under segregation. Going on a vacation was not easy. It was a pain in the behind. No place to eat, no place to pee. I mean, it was like, eh. and I didn't grow up in that um, that sort of uh, the green book, uh, you know, people who even knew. I didn't know about the green book until recently. I didn't grow up in that particular class structure. You know, so I know anything about that. So vacations make me anxious. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> traveling makes me anxious and that's generational trauma i know that's what i was like all listeners just say so you know now every time andy and ty are around, and i are around each other and something like pops up I'm like, <laughs> <Actually. laughs> like this let's, let's all read one of these books <laughs> yeah i think we can have a um a, a um a book club or a book review spinoff uh 
I actually have to read. I still have a book from Brian I have to read. So my reading list is is pretty pretty stacked. Oh yes, I feel that. <laughs> All right, let us hop into call to action. There are a lot this episode. So as always, please remember to go to the show notes because links to all of these different um, topics will be there for you. So I want to first invite our listeners to learn more about our guest by visiting her website. She has her own website as well as the Therapy Fund Foundation website. Nice. And you can also learn more about Griot, uh, which is a West African historian, storyteller, praise singer, poet, and or musician. Uh, the Griot is a repository of oral tradition and is often seen as a leader due to their position as an advisor to royal people. They are sometimes called bards and they also act as uh, mediators in disputes. Uh, so we have a link for you to learn more about um, Griot as well. Yes, I'll put it in there again. And it's um because at first I was like, oh, I think like a link. I usually try to do links that are like the Britannica, the encyclopedia, those kinds of things so that they're more tied research-wise and like if you were doing a book report this would be a perfect resource yeah but i also then came to this conclusion that i was like oh that is a like european and and western view of this culture so i it's just a heads up to everybody the link is not to a wikipedia or a britannica it's to um a website called culture trip and it's just another website that kind of looks at different cultures and gives you an opportunity to learn more about them or why you might want to go visit these different places, things like that. So, oh, also, we talk about Kevin Hines. And so Kevin Hines was discussed earlier in our episode as a person who attempted to unalive themselves off of the Golden Gate Bridge. So I have their website on here, and you can learn more about Kevin's story, their work with suicide prevention, and they have podcasts, you can see the documentary, you can even hire him to speak at an event. Nice. Right, do you want me to take this next one? Or do you, are you familiar with? No, I, you take it. <gasps> okay. Hi. Guys, let's check out the famous Jeff Jackson. Okay, sorry. One of the, another thing that was referenced in our show uh, was famous Jeff Jackson. And so famous Jeff Jackson is a TV show. On, it was a TV show on Disney. So it was a Disney movie. Okay. I didn't know if it was the same thing or not. I'm like, yeah, I know about Jet Jackson, but like, is this the same Jet Jackson? It is the same Jet Jackson. So Jet Jackson, um, he was portrayed by a young actor named Lee Thomas Young. And so Lee Thomas Young was a, a, a young man in Hollywood acting, and he had a lot of mental health things that were going on that he didn't necessarily have the best resources, didn't necessarily have a therapist. I don't exactly know, but he did analyze himself in the earlier 2000s. And so his family started a foundation to help people learn more about mental wellness, specifically in the communities of color, share their stories, um, and just get the word out that you're not alone if you're struggling with mental health issues in any capacity. So I'm going to have a link that website on the show notes as well so that you can check it out i think that that this foundation is really interesting and it's another beautiful representation of like what comes out of tragedy and it's still going on for 10 plus years to honor the memory of this very young man who had a huge impact on 
communities of color at that time, because again, representation, as we talk about these different people we're seeing and different ways that we can connect with them, like learning that this person was struggling with mental wellness and how that's okay. And that you can always get help if you are able to. So this foundation has an opportunity to like learn more about that. So continuing our call to action, uh, check out this list of books that we mentioned during the episode. First of all, Ashley's books, um, which are I Tried to Travel It Away, Mental Health Tips for Travelers, and also a Mental Health Survival Kit for Anti-Racist Advocates. Uh, also, we talked about The Revolution Will Not Be Funded, Children of Blood and Bone, Mother Hunger, Black Grief, Surviving Mama, it didn't start with you grieving while black in my grandmother's hands. Uh, you can find links for all of these books in our show notes. Yes. And as always, I'll put a link to like an independent bookseller. Because that's always a recommendation. Please check out an independent bookseller. Maybe not Amazon. Maybe. Maybe not this time, y'all. Um, another recommendation we all had for everyone is to find a therapist. We'll also have some links on the website. Um, excuse me. We'll have links on the show notes that will give you an opportunity to find a therapist in your neighborhood. We'll have some links that are linked to like psychology today, but we'll also have links to like, there's a website called therapy for black girls. And though it says it's them presenting in the title, it's not necessarily just for women. You'll have an opportunity to find therapists in their network of therapists that take all kinds of different funding as well as will be um, people of color. Nice. And also you can check out, uh, the Who Killed Malcolm X documentary on Netflix that we talked about earlier. Yes. And then we'll also have a link to what Angie was talking about with the Country Doctor or the Carolyn Downs clinics that offer mental health and mental wealth, uh, excuse me, mental health and mental wellness services at more of a discounted price. Yes, and last but not least, uh, you can check out the event that the Washington Therapy Fund uh, is hosting, the Reclaiming Wellness Conference, which is happening on July 21st, and there is a link in our show notes uh, for tickets to that as well. Whew. Thank you all for staying with us here towards the end. This is a very, very meaty episode, so we want to say thank you for listening. We are looking forward to chatting more with you all next month, but until then, Please share this episode with your friends and let's keep this conversation about mental health and mental wellness going. Take care, Seattle. And sweet dreams, Seattle. This program is supported in part by a grant from the Washington State Arts Commission and the National Endowment of the Arts. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206 888-6477. Thank you everyone for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible.